Welcome to this week's episode of the Money Mentors podcast. My name is Nathan Learon and with my co-host Glenn Fairburn. Glenn and I are both uh, directors and advisors at Hewson Private Wealth. Um, we are once again brought to you by Hewson Private Wealth, uh, one of Australia's leading independent wealth management firms. Um, today, Glenn and I will have a discussion around um, investment tax structures. So, um, if you are looking to um, invest some money, one thing that you'd like to think about uh, nice and early is a is a structuring of those investments. So, um, hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Money Mentors podcast. This week we want to spend a little bit of time chatting about the different structures um, and ways to own investments. So working through the tax implications of each of those structures and also the uh, pros and cons. We're going to try and keep it relatively simple and there's probably certain structures that we're not going to be covering off on today. So really just keeping it to the to the main ones that we think most people uh, may have experience with or, or, or may even be investing with at the moment. So I suppose just to kick things off, Nathan, the most simplistic way that I suppose most people would own assets would be in their own names. Um, so as far as the, I suppose, advantages of, of just buying an asset in your own name, what, what would you say that would be? Before, Glenn, before I say that, I was just going to make the point, I think getting it right at the start is, yeah, sorry, is, is, is so important because if you don't take the time to plan it out and understand future implications, there can be, you know, for example, significant taxation problems down the track. Yep, so really good point. Yeah, a bit, of, a bit of time just planning, maybe have a, have a conversation or a meeting with your accountant because obviously um, your accountant will be all across your, your tax structure. So that's probably, yeah, probably the first step. Um, so in terms of, uh, investing in an individual capacity um look it's probably well firstly it's probably the easiest yeah that's what i was saying. just simplistic yeah. isn't it yeah m- most people um you know they're going to buy some shares a property if they don't think a lot about it they're probably just going to put it in their in their individual names aren't they yeah and as you're, you're right i mean i think from a simplistic perspective owning an asset in your own name is very easy it's low cost um, you have to do a personal tax return anyway or most people do so you don't have to do a separate tax return so i think purely just from a simplistic perspective um, and cost perspective owning an asset in your own name um, can be very effective um, i suppose the the advantage from a tax perspective is that everyone has the um eighteen thousand dollar tax-free threshold yep. so if you own an investment in your own name and you've got no other income then the first eighteen thousand dollars that you earn from an asset will be tax-free um, yep. And I suppose the downside, though, is that once you start earning income, um, that the tax applicable to any investment income is is marginal, isn't it? So it can progressively increase up to forty seven and a half percent, or forty seven percent. Sorry. Yeah, de- definitely. Um, all, all very valid points, and uh, probably one thing that pops in my mind, Glenn, is the the family home is uh, usually going to be owned in in your individual names because you yeah. you basically get the um, principal place of residence tax exemption so you know, if you do sell that property down the track you don't have to basically worry about which uh which entity you put that in due to yeah, that definitely that carve out absolutely and that, that probably alludes to um the the negatives of a few other structures but I, I think you're right you know in regards to a principal place of residence there is a great benefit in having it in your own name um, because you do get that capital gains tax exe- exemption um 
look, the other advantage from a capital gains perspective, if you own an asset in your own name, is that you do get the 50% capital gain ex- exemption or discount. Um, so effectively, for every dollar of gain that you may realize from the sale of an asset, you only pay tax um, on 50% of that gain. Um, so I think that sort of covers off on most of the things relating to own your own yeah. name. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, this is what I'm about to say will slightly lead into where we're going to go with this. But obviously, some of the, the drawbacks are that you can't, um, you know, you have no flexibility in terms of where you distribute income, for example. So yeah. you know, if you buy an investment property, a, a, a share, whatever it might be in your individual name, um, you're, you know, you're going to be stuck with the income that investment generates and any future That's capital right. gain, um, which will probably lead a little bit into what we'll talk about later. But probably at the same time, in terms of a benefit, is the negative, if it's negatively geared, um, you know, if you purchase an asset, you borrow money, so there's a, there's a, it's negatively geared. There's basically a shortfall between what the investment generates in income um, and the, uh, is less than the, the loan interest you're paying. You, know, you can get that, that tax deduction as well. So there can be, and it can offset employment income and things like that. So there can be a benefit there. Yeah, and I suppose well. that the next step up from owning something in your own name would be owning it jointly with somebody else that may be a spouse or, or yep. not. Yep. Um, and I suppose in, in some ways that gives an advantage from a tax perspective in that instead of the investment income being solely taxable in your names, there is the capacity where it can be split um, so, for example, if you if you don't assuming you don't have any other salary income or any other income as an individual, you can earn eighteen thousand dollars tax free. As a couple, obviously that doubles to thirty six thousand dollars. So um, there is an advantage there, I suppose, in in having it owned jointly with an individual. Um, and most people, getting back to the example of the, of the home, most people um, in, in a partnership or a relationship would probably look at buying an asset jointly. Yeah. Um, I suppose outside of the tax implications, one of the advantages from an estate planning perspective owning an asset jointly is that if one of those owners passes away, it automatically passes to the survivor. So it doesn't need to flow through the estate. So I suppose that's two benefits of owning something jointly. Um, And I suppose pretty closely aligned to that, in particular when you're looking at property purchase, another way to do that when you're purchasing an asset with, with somebody else, maybe a partner or not, um, is to have it tenants in common. Um, so just to, did you want to explain what, what that was, Nathan, tenants yeah. in common? Yeah, so tenants in common is somewhat similar to uh, own, own jointly, but you basically have a, a, a share of ownership of that asset. So for example, if you're purchasing a, a property, let's say with a um, like a friend, for example, you might go tenants in common at 50% each. So, or you can, the percentage can be whatever you stipulate. It could be 70, yeah. 30, 60, 40. Um, so you've got a, a a share a percentage share of ownership of that asset, um, and then when you when you pass away or e- either of those um, two people pass away, it will basically be dealt with via their estate, unlike yeah. where you explained jointly, where it will simply pass on to the um, to the other person there. Um, and that's really where it's specific to what your estate planning objective is, isn't it? For sure. Because if, if you're yep. buying a property with someone that you're not in a relationship with, or even if you are. Um, it, it may not be appropriate to um, own it jointly and have your share automatically passed to them if you do die. That's right. Um, so that, that's where yeah. that tenants in common. I guess that you know these things are all interrelated in terms of you know tax planning, financial planning, estate planning. 
you really do need to be across it early. And like, like I said right at the start, when you are going into an investment, you need to really think about the, the structure and future implications around that. Probably, Glenn, one of the things I was going to mention in terms of the uh, jointly, as we're talking about jointly owned assets, although it is helpful, you can split it across, or you have to automatically 50-50 split it across with your partner. Um, it, it, it doesn't, it, it can, there is other structures that can be a little bit more tax efficient. For example, if the, let's say one of the members of that relationship is a high income earner and yeah. the other one stops working for whatever reason, um, you know, you don't have that flexibility there, do you, to, no, to kind of shift right. the income, which we'll talk about yeah, a little bit later. Yeah. And, and look, I, I think from a, if we're purely looking at, even if it, you're a retiree, um, obviously, as, as you were saying, from a, from a return perspective, one, one of the things that can really eat away into your return is tax. So if you, you're in a situation where you've got a couple um, and, and they've got, let's just say they've got a million dollars invested at 5%, so earning 50,000 in income. Now, if, that, if all of those assets were in one person's name, they will be tax payable. Whereas if the, those assets are split evenly, assumedly, and, the, and it's joint names, there's a situation where because you're splitting that $50,000 in income between two people, in particular mm. when you're over the age of 65, you may not pay any tax at all. So, mm. you know, I suppose that just leads back to what you said at the very beginning before launching into the discussion is that you really need to not, not only think about the short-term implications, but also the long-term implications of owning an asset within an entity. Um, but what, what you were saying there around with in particular owning assets jointly and not having the ability to sort of have control as to how much income each individual receives because it's effectively just 50 50 um that that is a good segue into the next structure that i I wanted to have a bit of a chat about which is um trusts and in particular discretionary or family trusts um and i suppose very simplistically without getting into too much detail and obviously people should seek specialist advice before they run out setting up trusts but very simplistically, what the reason they're called discretionary trusts is because whatever income is generated within that trust, the trustee has discretion as to where they distribute that income um, across either one or multiple beneficiaries. So if you've got a situation like what you were using as an example before, Nathan, where you may have you know, a couple and one of them's a high income earner and the other one's not, um, well, what you can do is actually look at the tax returns or look at what your taxable income is leading up to the end of financial year and then use your discretion as to who would be most beneficial to receive that income from a pure tax perspective. So it it does give you a lot of flexibility, doesn't it? And and a a very common example there, which I know, Glenn, personally, you've been through, I've been through as well with um, when when you have children and, for example, the wife might take take time off work, they've got that $18,000 tax-free threshold that, that might not be used at all. So... If you have um, investments in a trust and they're obviously a beneficiary of that trust, um, you can, or your accountant, or you can basically allocate um, income from those investments, in that case, in your wife's name, and yeah. perhaps pay no tax. And then down the track, like for example, you, you, you may be not on the top rate of tax, your tax rate may be 30 odd percent. Um, and when your wife was working, you may have been on similar tax rates. So during those years where you're both working, yeah, you might use the trust and distribute income evenly. Um, but as you were saying, if you're in a situation where one of the spouses is at home, in that year, you can distribute all the income to that person who's at home. And then when they go back to work, you've got the flexibility to then change and, and perhaps distribute it 50-50. 
Um, but also as, as your children get older as well, if they're in university, they might not be working, earning income, you know, you may be able to distribute income to them as well. So there's a lot of flexibility around using a trust. Obviously, there's complexity that we're not going to get going to today, but purely from a tax perspective, the reason why people, um, I suppose, see benefits in discretionary trust is that it does give you a bit of flexibility. Um, but I suppose one of the downsides is it is a separate structure, so there are costs involved as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And if you are looking to, I mean, obviously, we'll talk about superannuation a little bit later, but you know, if you are building wealth in your individual name and, and you're starting to invest it and you do have a spouse or, or other beneficiaries, definitely worth considering a trust because it does offer all those benefits that we just spoke about. Yeah, but I suppose it's not something that's suitable for everyone um, because you know you may be in a situation where there's only two of you, you're both retired, um, the income split between the two of you won't result in tax anyway. So in that example, you probably wouldn't use a trust. Yeah, that's or right. Hypothetically, you wouldn't use a trust. That's or right, if you're just a, a single person and you've got no other beneficiaries, well, you're probably not going to get a lot of benefits out of a trust if all the income is going to you anyway. But yeah, that, that's the tricky part though. You might not now, but yeah. you might find a partner in 10 years. That's right, yeah. And you might have kids down the track. So, And you can make use of them. So yeah, look, at you've got to make a bit of a judgment call, don't you, at the start. Well, you just got to whack the cost versus the benefit, don't you? I mean, if, if, it's, if it's costing you a few thousand dollars a year and you're not seeing the benefit, then maybe it's not worth it. But as you were saying, I think you've also got to consider that not just the short term, but also your long-term situation may change. Yep. Um, just the, another type of, I mean, there's multiple types of trusts, I suppose, and some of them are more complex than others. And, and we're sort of uh, mindful of not getting too complex and convoluted and, and, and confusing people too much. But the other sort of trust that I suppose most people may have invested in without even knowing about it is, is a unit trust. Um, and, and did you just want to explain what a, how a unit trust differentiates from a discretionary trust? Yeah, I'll look, it's, it's, it, we won't, won't go too deep into this, but basically, uh, so a discretion that we just spoke about, you have full discretion in terms of who you allocate uh, distributions to, where, a, um, where a, a unit trust, it's, it's basically, it's fixed, isn't it? So you'll have a yeah. certain number of units that... that yeah. That you'll own, or that'll be attributed to the to the um, the different beneficiaries. Yeah, and I suppose an example would be if you and I set up a, a unit trust with five units. You own two units, and I own three units. Then effectively, that the distribution in that it's, example it's fixed is fixed. That, right. So you get yep. two fifths of the income, and I get three fifths of the income. Yep. And a perfect example of that would be a managed fund. So a lot of people, whether it's through superannuation or or um, just through investing in their own names, a managed fund is effectively a unitized investment where investors, as they invest in that fund, receive units and the distribution that they receive from that fund mm. is directly proportionate to how many units they own in that structure. Yeah, um, so probably more common with bigger, you know, bigger sums of invested capital where there might be, and you know, unrelated parties, for example. Yeah, or where there's, yeah, un unrelated parties or where there's, um, you know, it, it's attributable to how much you're putting into a particular trust. Mm. Whereas a discretionary trust, as we were saying earlier, is probably more used in a family type environment where it's mm. one sort of pot of money. Yep. Whereas if, if, for example, you want to buy an asset that's worth a million dollars, you've got $200,000, um, you know, a colleague might have $400,000 and you've got four, another $400,000. In that example, obviously, you don't want to have the income splitting out equally between each of those investors. So that's where a unit trust may be beneficial. Um, but once again, there's costs involving. You need to really consider the implications of that. 
and also on the um, on the benefit of the the family trust or the discretionary trust is the um, the on on capital future capital gains can obviously also be um, distributed according to the the most efficient taxation outcome, um, and also you know you can still make use of the fifty percent. Um, 50% capital gains discount if the asset has yeah. been held for more than a year as well. And that's a good so. point because it, it, it's one of those things where trusts themselves don't pay a tax, but any distribute, I mean, basically any income generated within the trust is taxed in the hands of the beneficiary. Um, and if it's not distributed to the beneficiary, obviously the it's taxed at the at the top rate of tax of, of the trustee. So that, there are implications that you, you can't just say, well, I'll just leave the money in the trust because it, it still would be taxable in that example. Um, I suppose moving on to a not a more complex one but um, one that most people may be familiar with is just owning assets within a company Um, and I suppose look once again it's a separate legal entity a separate tax structure Um, and and the implications of owning an asset within a company is that the tax on investment income is effectively taxed at 30% um, there has been a reduction in the company tax rate down to 27.5% in the current financial year. However, there's still a, um, a, a proposal at the moment that that discounted tax rate will only apply to effectively business entities with turnover of uh, less than $10 million um, and that those companies that basically have more than 80% of their income being passive income, so effectively investment income, may not be eligible for that. Um, so once again, important to seek uh, tax advice from your accountant in relation to the benefits of setting up a company. But simplistically, any income is basically taxed at, for argument's sake, 30%, a flat rate of 30%. Um, so what, what would you say the advantages and disadvantages of that, of that are? I think the big one is the, thir- the big advantage is the 30% tax rate, which if you're on the top marginal rate of tax, even if, you, yeah. even if you've got a family trust, you're still paying that top rate of tax. Mm-hmm. That's probably, but then the... the one of the big disadvantages is the um, that the fifty percent capital gains tax discount yeah, that we which spoke you don't about. Get, do you? Yep. Yeah, you don't you don't get that in the company. So that's you know if you make um, you know some serious gains on a property or whatever it might be investments over many many years, um, yeah, you can't make use of that fifty percent discount. Yeah, and I suppose the one thing that a lot of people don't bear in mind, and and this is once again where it gets a little bit technical, um, but when you put money into a company to invest and then it increases in value and you've got income that's being generated, obviously being taxed at the company rate, um, it can only really come out in two ways. I mean, you can't just draw money out of the company and expect there to be no tax implications. I mean, very simplistically, the only way it can come out is via a dividend or via, via repayment of a loan. But if you're investing in assets that are increasing in value um, and you might put $200,000 in a company and it grows to half a million dollars, the implications there are that if you ever want to use it in future, then you have to draw the money out. And if it's coming out as a, as a dividend, if your tax rate's 47%, obviously the company tax rate's been applied, but you still have to pay that top-up tax, don't you? So it's really within a company, I suppose the one thing that most accountants would probably tell their clients, it's really just a tax deferral mechanism, isn't it? Because, mm-hmm. yeah, you're paying tax at 30%, but if your tax rate ordinarily is 47%, then at some point in future, if you ever want to make personal use of the money, you, you need to draw it out. Yeah, if you want to get it out of the company. Yeah. And eventually, you're going to pay the yeah. tax anyway. So once again, it, it's all good and well investing within a company and getting the benefit of that low company tax rate mm. in the short term. 
But then, as I was saying, when you go to take the money out of the company for your own purpose, you may find that you're paying that sort of what we call top-up tax anyway. If your tax rate's 47% and you want to access the money in the company, you're going to pay that additional effectively 17%. So there are implications around it. And once again, it is a separate legal entity, a separate structure. So there are costs involved and complexities. Yeah, and probably, look, it's probably not a common thing we see with our clients, is it? them receiving advice to invest in a company structure for investment purposes no it's quite uncommon i'd say yeah it's for in our experience it's it's pretty uncommon um and i think it's purely because as advisors when we're sort of working with accountants and quite often we'll work alongside accountants to give our clients the best overall outcome so that we're all on the same page and normally our input would be that obviously number one as you were saying earlier you're not getting the capital gains tax discount um and that longer term you're probably going to pay the tax anyway so perhaps you're better off investing in a separate structure but once again there's no one size fits all um, and it's really important to consider what's what's suitable for you for yourself given your tax situation Um, so nathan just a final structure that i wanted to um, have a chat about is probably one that nearly everyone would have exposure to and that's superannuation and a lot of the time superannuation probably gets um, regarded to as like an investment product where people say, oh, superannuation did this last year, the returns from super were that. But effectively, superannuation isn't an investment product. It's really just a tax structure, isn't it? It's a means to own assets with, with the sole purpose of providing for your yeah. retirement. Well, well, it is It is actually a trust structure. It is a type yeah, it's of... it's a trust, exactly. It is a type of a trust. But um, yeah, look, there, there is definitely misconceptions out there that it is viewed as a product, which is forever a bit of a, a bugbear of ours, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, because there's there's multiple ways to invest through, through superannuation and within superannuation, but you're 100% right. I mean, simplistically, it's a trust mm. with a trustee and a trust deed that has the rules and regulations mm. around what you can and can't do. Um, from a tax perspective, the advantage being that while you're still working and contributing, the tax rate is effectively no more than 15% on earnings. So that's already a significant mm. advantage even when you compare it to those other structures like a company we were saying that's taxed at 30% well, super's 15 so that I suppose it's a great benefit there. Um, I suppose one of the disadvantages... And, and, and Glenn, the top marginal rate of tax for individuals is you know, circa around 45%. So it's yeah. basically, you know, two-thirds yeah, less absolutely. than that at 15%. So it's, it's a significantly less tax than other the other structures available. Yeah, I suppose the only thing it doesn't have is that tax-free threshold, does it? Like if you're an individual, obviously you get the yeah. first 18,000. So you don't get that within super. Um, but, you know, worst-case scenario, 15% tax rate, still a pretty good outcome. Yeah, I mean, while you're accumulating, it doesn't have the tax-free threshold. But obviously... Um, maybe I'll jump into yeah when you do move into a retirement phase and start drawing an account-based pension, um, and if you are effectively retired or over or over um, age 65, all the earnings go to go to zero up to the up to the cap of 1.6 million dollars per member, which was recently introduced. So, yeah, in in retirement you can have 1.6 million dollars in in super and and pay zero tax on earnings. Yeah, and I think. Obviously, there was there was a, a bit of furor when the government introduced the um, the cap on on tax free earnings for balances below one point six. But when you look at it, you know if if you're a couple, that means you can have basically three point two million dollars in a superannuation fund and not pay tax on earnings. It's still a very good yes. outcome, isn't it? De- definitely. And most yep. people, assuming that the government's 
most recent rule regarding imputation credits doesn't change, but most people even get a refund. Um, mm. So from a tax perspective, superannuation in our view is probably still the number one structure, but there's disadvantages in using super as well, isn't there? Yeah, look, superannuation should definitely be part of any good financial plan and um, that low tax rate is probably number one advantage, but but the, the big... Uh, the big consideration, which I think you just alluded to, then Glenn, is the uh, the access to capital side yeah. of it. Um, so obviously, you can't you can't access superannuation effectively until you're 60 years of age. So um, you know, if you're in your 20s or 30s, you might be, oh great, I can I can put money in super and pay tax on earnings at 15%. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, if something happens or you want to access that money, it is locked away until you're 60. So that's probably the big trade-off in that one, isn't it? Yeah, and, and also I think if you are still quite young. You, and you take the view to, um, you know, put as much in superannuation as possible. Not only do you lose access to that money, but you're probably exposing yourself to a little bit of legislative risk as well, aren't you? Because things, I mean, if you're close to retirement, you know, maybe you think things aren't going to change that much. But if you're 30 years out from retirement, given that what we've seen in the last 10 years, the changes with super, that I think the goalposts may change over that period of time. So you're probably exposing yourself to a little bit of risk going too gung-ho into superannuation as well, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. But I, I think even with all the bad press, the, the one thing that, that we speak to clients about is the fact that superannuation still remains the most tax-efficient vehicle to accumulate, sorry, accumulate assets for your, uh, for your retirement. Sure. Um, well, look, that, that's all that we've got time for today. As, as, as I said from the outset, I mean, these... These sort of discussions are, are quite complex and, and definitely not tailored to your individual situation. So, you, and we don't espouse to be tax specialists. So, we really just wanted to cover off on um, the key themes within each of those structures, you know, what the pros and cons from our perspective are. Um, but you really do need to um, speak to your accountants about your specific situation and how each of these structures may work. Um, but look, we, we hope you enjoyed today's podcast and we look forward to uh, speaking to you all again next week. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of the Money Mentors podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, please remember to check out Hewison Private Wealth's website, which is www.hewison.com.au. You can also find more about us via the various social media platforms, so Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, please also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes review, rate and comment um, and as always please feel free to reach out to us on our email which is moneymentors at hewlson.com.au Look forward to chatting again to you all next week.